Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, Round the Corner, Almost Here Technology. And I have an interesting interview today. Um, maybe other people may not be interested, but I am, because I work with attorneys on the side. Um, I have Patrick Merck, special counsel at Cooley LLP, a large law firm with a whole bunch of locations. And Patrick's here because um, he deals with Bitcoin and blockchain and the legal implications of uh, any ventures associated with it. And I hope that's a good intro, but uh, how are you doing, Patrick? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So um, can you tell folks a little bit about your background and, um, you know, what you do now? Uh, sure. So uh, I'm a lawyer by training. Um, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a special counsel, or as I like to say, very special counsel at uh, Cooley. Um, mm. We're a, a large firm uh, primarily in the U.S., but we have some um, offices abroad as well, uh, servicing technology companies. Um, I work in the fintech practice group, um, so dealing a lot with financial technology uh, companies, but also companies, technology companies generally that have um, that touch on sort of financial services or payments or things like that, and help them navigate those regulatory waters. In addition to my role at Cooley, I'm also a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center uh, for Internet and Society at Harvard University, where I run the Digital Finance Initiative, uh, looking at the broader social implications of the digital transition uh, that's occurring right now in the financial system. Okay. And, you know, I guess we'll focus the discussion, you know, within FinTech on uh, Bitcoin and blockchain technologies or technology, because uh, that's, you know, a lot of the focus of this podcast. But um, in particular, in those areas, when did you start interacting with companies that are in that space? And, you know, what have you gotten to know about the space generally so far? Yeah, so I think I'm on, what is it, year six now, seven, uh, involved in Bitcoin and the blockchain. Um, and I got involved in all of this uh, because I've been involved in a number of different startups, both as an early employee, as a founder, um, as an advisor. I've kind of run the gamut. Um, and I left my first law firm and was an early employee at a company that was in digital currency in 2009. Um, hmm. So just about when Bitcoin was starting, although we weren't involved in Bitcoin then. But that got me very interested in digital currency, financial technology, um, and all the different um, the business models and also the legal and regulatory uh, structure around creating these systems and virtual economies. Once I left that startup, um, I became drawn to Bitcoin. And in some ways, Bitcoin was drawn to me because I was a digital currency lawyer at a time when there weren't very many people out there who actually advertise themselves as digital currency lawyers. So a lot of mm. Bitcoin people found me very quickly uh, and drew me in even further to their world. And I um, started helping people out on the side and then um, as clients 
and and then of uh, entrepreneur. Um, how many lawyers do you estimate are proficient in um, you know digital currency, Bitcoin, blockchain, etc.? Well, I, I hope the number has grown <laughs> a lot, um, and I'm sure it has, uh, and, and I think it's growing every day. Um, a lot of people are are coming up to speed on this technology. I know that there are law schools that are now teaching courses on really? Bitcoin and blockchain and digital currency. So it, it's now starting to become a real practice area, which is terrific. Um, and I, I like to think that a lot of the lawyers who are out there who are working in the space now are people that I interacted with years and years ago, some of whom I got interested in the space in the first place, which is obviously very uh, fulfilling uh, for me to see that happen. Yeah. I don't know what the climate's like, but it seems like there's definitely a, a Wild West component to you know, blockchain and Bitcoin. How seriously are the companies that you advise and work with about um, you know, AML, KYC compliance, and understanding all the laws surrounding cryptocurrencies, or they kind of, you know, hey, we just want to worry about the technology and, uh, you know, we're not worried about the legal side of it. Yeah, I mean, if somebody's coming to me and they, they're looking to engage a law firm, then they generally have already moved past that, that, that sense of, well, maybe we just don't have to deal with, you know, all these regulatory issues, or we don't have to build a, um, a KYC program or a CIP program to, to manage our anti-money laundering risk, uh, and things like that. Um, now, that doesn't mean that every client that comes in the door needs to deal with those regulations, and we can sometimes work with clients to understand when they're touching, like, kind of the third rail that would um, invoke some of these regulatory frameworks and how they can sometimes avoid them if that's not really their primary business. But if you want to get in the business of handling people's finances and, and handling their money, then you have to accept some of the responsibility that comes along with that. I think in the very early days of Bitcoin, and there are still people out there who feel like maybe those laws are unfair and, and, and they want to work around them or they don't want to deal with them, and they, they do sort of adopt this Wild West approach, those aren't usually the people who come calling, um, and they're not usually the people that I'd be interested in working with. Yeah, I, well, I could have asked the question better. In general, in the community at large, do you think there's still a large percentage of people that feel like that? You know, hey, leave me alone, and I'm going to do what I want, or you think the community is quickly moving towards, yes, regulations needed, and um, you may understand there's laws involved, we have to follow them. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that what's happened over time is people have realized that there's a reason that some of these laws exist, right? And even laws they don't agree with, they understand that if they want to have a business, if they want to raise and attract venture capital to support them, um, if they want customers to trust that they will do right by the, their customers, um, then they have to adopt some of these um uh, um, compliance measures into their business model and how they operate. So I, I've seen the evolution. I have. Like I think again, as you stated, in the early days, it's true that it was a bit of a wild west kind of scene, and there were a lot of people who were trying to specifically avoid some of these obvious um, uh, regulations and avoid having to comply with them, or just simply 
just didn't comply with regulations that mm. certainly did apply to them because they just didn't feel like it, they thought they were unfair, or they thought because they were using Bitcoin or the blockchain that they were beyond the scope of the law. None of those mm. things are true, right? Um, and I think people right. have come to realize that. And it's been some painful lessons for people, right? I mean, we've had people who have gone to jail over not um, not complying with these rules. And so painful lessons, but lessons learned, hopefully. Well, one big question is, you know, I talked to a couple of people that, that tell me, you know, the IRS sees Bitcoin in particular as property. And FINRA sees it as something else. And the SEC sees it as a security. And it seems like, I don't know if there's specific law surrounding Bitcoin and blockchain, but it seems like everything's in a gray area and other laws are applying to it. Um, it seems like it's hard to operate in the space without clear-cut law on what to do and what not to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, financial services regulation in the U.S. is is very fragmented. Um, it's uh, parochial and it's difficult to understand when and where it applies. That's that's true, absolutely. And um, there's a need to modernize how we regulate these different types of companies. That is specifically true for Bitcoin and digital currency and some some types of blockchain applications where you know you you can go to a state regulator and ask them, hey, am I a money transmitter? Do I need a license to operate within your your borders? And sometimes states will just not answer, right? And that's that's sure. not a that's not a sufficient response from a regulator to just say we don't know, but we're not going to tell you. Maybe maybe not, right? You, you should have as a as somebody who's trying to start and establish a business and run a business a clear understanding of what your obligations are and what standards you're going to be held to by the regulatory community uh, before you before you get going, um, as long as you're willing to do your diligence. Uh, so there's a, a, there's a lot of work to be done to modernize the regulatory system within which these companies are operating. There's absolutely no doubt about that. What are some of the incarnations that um, companies have taken in this space? You said one's a money transmitter. Can you talk very briefly about, you know, what criteria could apply to that and what, what regulations apply, and then maybe give a few other incarnations of other creatures out there in the in the space? Sure. So uh, the most frequent one and the one we saw most often um, in Bitcoin circles is this money transmitter, money service business regulation, which is both uh, regulation that occurs at the federal level um, and also at the state level, so at both levels. Um, so if I take money from you and I hold it and I send it to somebody else, that's a typical money transmitter relationship. Think of Western Union or MoneyGram. Also, if I right. sell certain payment instruments, um, I can be a money transmitter, especially in certain states like Florida, for example. I would be a money transmitter just for selling certain types of payment instruments and Bitcoin would qualify as one of those payment instruments. So what you see is if you're a Bitcoin exchange um, and you're holding money, you're, you have a, a Bitcoin wallet where somebody deposits their Bitcoin on account with the exchange, um, like a, a Coinbase, for example, which has money transmitter licenses, um, mm -hmm. then you are effectively going to be a money transmitter in most states 
but not all. Uh, and this is where it gets confusing, right? Because again, there's a very fragmented approach to how we regulate these things. So some states will view the uh, Bitcoin exchange with a, a hosted wallet as money transmission. Some states don't. Some states it's sort of unclear because they just haven't really decided. Um, and that's that's a bit unfair for for uh, entrepreneurs, I think. So what happens if you're uh, if you feel like you may be considered to be a money transmitter? What are just you know not everything, but what are a couple of the things that you need to do to comply with regulation? So if you're a money transmitter, then most likely you're going to have to register at the federal level with uh, the U.S. Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Intelligence Unit, which is uh, FinCEN. Um, you'll register as a money service business there. Once you've registered, that means you're signifying to the government that you're establishing an anti-money laundering compliance program and that you're going to file suspicious activity reports and potentially currency transaction reports uh, as you monitor your customers' transactions. So if your customers engage in any sort of suspicious behavior on your, on your platform, you're then going to report that suspicious behavior to the Financial Intelligence Unit here in the U.S., which is FinCEN. That's at the federal level what your requirement is. If you fail to do that, you can expect to get a large fine and potentially criminal consequences as well. Um, Western Union, I just think just the other day, uh, signed a consent decree and they're going to pay like a $140 million fine for uh, any money laundering violations, for example. And other companies, particularly digital currency companies, have been hit with fines as well um, over the years. Huh. Uh, so it's very important to be compliant, as you can imagine. At the state level, certain states will require you to have a license in order to conduct that type of business, right? Um, so Illinois and Florida, places like that, you will have to go, you'll go to the State Department of Financial Services, um, and you'll apply for a license there. They are going to run background checks on all the officers and executives and, and, and board members, take fingerprints. Um, and require you to post a bond and have certain capital requirements around uh, the company, uh, and all sorts of, ver it's very intrusive, the process, it's lengthy, it's very expensive. Um, and then in New York, famously, they have, yeah. in addition to the money transmitter statute, they, they have an additional technology-specific set of regulations for digital currency companies called the bit license, which adds even greater burden for companies that want to get licensed and do business in New York. Some of those companies will have to have both a bit license and a money transmitter license, um, as well as all the other states and the federal requirements. Okay. What about um, individuals like local Bitcoins type people? Is there a de minimis exemption for them or do they not have problems just because they're buying and selling for themselves? As long as you're buying and selling for yourself, if that's actually the case, then you you will not fall within the federal framework. Um, the the guidelines issued by FinCEN exclude personal type transactions. You also won't fall within the in, in, within any state statute because they're all governed by this a concept that you are in the business of being a money transmitter. So if you're just if you're buying and selling for personal use, then you're not doing it. You're not in the business of doing that. 
And when I say in the business, I don't mean predominantly in the business. I mean it's a business. It's a line of business for you. So if you're just buying and selling Bitcoins because it's a hobby for you or because you want to pay for VPN services or you want to you know, register domains and you want to use Bitcoin as payment rail for that or for your own use enjoyment or because you want to speculate, that's all fine, right? That's not necessarily mm -hmm. in the business. That's for your personal use. If you're a local Bitcoin trader and you're doing it because you have a side business buying and selling Bitcoins or facilitating the trade of Bitcoin or exchange of Bitcoin, then you might fall under the, the state regulation and, and the federal regulation, even as an individual. So it, it, it's, mm. it's, it's a little bit murky um, uh, what that actually means because it's a facts and circumstances determination which means you don't know until you go to court and you prove it out, right? That's um, mm, not good. Right. But, 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 but the rule is, I mean, if you really are just using it for your own personal use and your own purposes, then there, there really isn't any question here, right? That, that's not covered. Okay. That's not regulated activity. And is there a difference in law if you, it seems like you move from fiat world to crypto world and back again, that's when it's toughest. But what about people that just are only in the crypto world and they're just exchanging different cryptocurrencies? Um, is that considered money transmission or because it's considered property supposedly in the U.S.? Is it not even considered to be moving money? I mean, what what could be the laws that apply to people like that? Right. So, um, uh, it, it, again, it, it's, it's, there, there's, it's a fragmented regulatory structure, so there's not like one clear-cut answer on that. Um, but generally speaking, you know, you have a lot more leeway when you're not exchanging back to a legal tender currency, right, fiat money. Um, so you can do a lot more in that context than you can in the context of the exchange of a cryptocurrency or blockchain token for U.S. dollars or euros or yen or something like that. When we talk about Bitcoin as property, the money transmitter statutes aren't there's nothing in the money transmitter statute that says it has to be fiat currency that's involved, right? These statutes are purposefully broad enough to cover any sort of transaction and anything that substitutes for money, right? So um, just because we're using Bitcoin to transact does not necessarily mean that, that a state or a court won't find it to be money. Um, and we have case law on point um, in the Trend and Shavers case where the defense argued that, you know, his, the Ponzi scheme wasn't a Ponzi scheme because no money was involved. Uh, and mm. the court, in my opinion, correctly found that for the purposes of SEC enforcement, Bitcoin is a substitute for money, right? It's still a payment instrument okay. that operates as money. And to be clear mm. on this property concept, um, property and okay. money and securities and commodities and all the different things that, we, we get bandied about all of these things are property, right? Everything in the world is property um, as far as the law is concerned. At the, at the base level, everything is property, right? It's just that some types of property get like magical powers by, because of the operation of the law or statutes, right? Mm. So green pieces of paper with numbers on them that are issued by the government, it's still property, but it's also in addition to property, it's currency of the U.S. government, which gives it very special powers, 
right, um, in terms of okay. fungibility and the types of things you can do with it, um, which you can't do with other types of personal property and in terms of taxes. But at the end of the day, all of these things are essentially property. Bitcoin is just personal property because there, there, there has been no statute or other legal operation that gives it any kind of magical powers beyond just regular old property like a stapler on my desk or a pen, you know, in the, in, that I use to write with. Okay, makes sense. So um, there may be a little bit less regulation if you stay in the crypto world. Let's say you're like Poloniex and you just, you know, allow people to buy Ethereum with Bitcoin or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Any other um, incarnations besides the money transmitter? What else um, can companies be in this space that's of interest? Yeah, so I mean, the, the other big kind of area that's emerging right now, um, when we're talking about real blockchains like Ethereum and, and Bitcoin and, and things like that, it, are the the security laws implications, right? Um, okay. So we talked about money transmission, you know, the exchange of Bitcoin or holding Bitcoin for somebody else and sending it on their instructions, things like that. There's also the idea that if I use blockchain tokens and they serve as an investment vehicle um, for investing in a particular network and I have certain governance rights, things like that, that maybe I've fallen into the scope of uh, securities law, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so while that, does, that is not the case for Bitcoin, Bitcoin's not a security, um, that may be the case for some of these other projects like things like the DAO, for example, um, if you're familiar with that, where you're issuing a blockchain token, you're marketing it as a way to pool money together to invest, to gain a return for people, and giving people certain governance rights that are attached to their ownership of a blockchain token. Mm -hmm. It starts looking a lot like an investment contract, um, which is a security, a type of security. Um, right. And... At that point, it becomes very questionable whether, you know, the people who are developing these systems, whether, you know, they're illegally marketing a security to the general public, which is not permitted. Um, whether, again, whether we agree with that um, or not, or, or how much public participation we should have at which stage in different types of securities is a long conversation and, and an interesting one. But as the law exists today, marketing those types of products, whether it's on a blockchain or not, is could implicate a lot of these securities laws. Um, what do you think would be the consequence for existing uh, tokens out there, like Ethereum, et cetera? And, you know, what about new ones, the initial coin offerings or the token offerings? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, what, what I'm seeing is you have two types of people who are out there, and it reminds me very much of the early days in Bitcoin around money transmission, where you have two types of entrepreneurs, two types of developers who are who are out there. There's the one that's you know saying none of these rules should apply to me, and I'm just going to go do it, and you know we're going to create our own system anyways, so we don't need the you know forget the law and all of that, right? Uh, very kind of like crypto anarchist approach to these things, right? Um, and then you're seeing the other kind, right? And, and we see it 
a lot. I think as a firm, we've probably done more work. Um, me and my partner, uh, Marco Santori, we've probably done more work um, helping people navigate these security laws issues um, than I think any other firm out there. Uh, and and you can navigate these waters, right? If if, if you if you want to do an ICO or if you want to issue a token um, or, or create some sort of like consumption-based token to access your new blockchain network, um, there are ways to do it that are within you know within bounds that don't violate sort of these rules that where you're not um, uh, marketing a, a security um, to the general public mm -hmm. illegally. Okay. So it's it, it's very doable. It's possible to do these things. It's possible to do them the right way and to do them in a responsible way. Um, it's just that there are people who who are choosing not to, and that happens. You know, we we see these these waves. You know, all the time. So, um, any other. Uh you know, hazards out there, legal hazards that people are aware or not aware of in this realm? Um, I, I think my, my general advice is usually, right, if you, if you're consulting, if you're consulting legal professionals, if you're doing right by your customers, and, gen you know, generally not trying to be the tall tree in the forest, Right and shouting mm -hmm. from the rooftop like that you're going to do this crazy thing, um, you, you're generally going to be okay, right? You, you can operate responsibly. Right. You can still innovate. We can still do some things, um, and you won't have too many blind spots. And that's a good thing. Um, I think that there's instead of challenges, I like to, I think there's some opportunity here. Um, there are efforts to help modernize a lot of this kind of legal complexity and the kind of fragmented regulatory framework that exists today. Um, the Treasury Department, uh, the OCC, um, has a proceeding going on right now um, where they are looking at issuing special bank charters for financial technology companies, which are create one single uniform uh, national framework for financial technology services. Whether that will apply to real fintech startups or just really large companies or just to another bank, you know, all to be determined, but it's an opportunity to to chime in and try and help influence the direction of this new kind of regulatory framework so that we can have a unified structure where all a lot of this uncertainty is taken out of the picture and potentially we can get some new regulatory frameworks on the books that allow for faster and and um, more responsible innovation. Yeah, you probably already answered my next question in part, but yeah, what do you think is going to happen in the next uh, few years in regards to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and then in blockchain technology in general? Do you think it's going to have to collide with, it's going to have to become very um, similar to current you know, fiat currencies in terms of regulation, or do you think it's going to go its own path? What's your guess? Um, I, I I try not to predict too much in this space. Um, it's sort of a fool's game, right? Because um, whatever you predict will happen, it will either not happen or not on the timeline that you think it will. Um, hmm. 
it's 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 a it's a very fast moving and dynamic space, both in terms of the technology, uh, the businesses, and and the legal side. But I do think that there is this awareness that we need to again sort of modernize our regulatory structure here in the U.S. And if we don't, there are other countries that are doing that, um, and you're going to start seeing innovation travel abroad and move to those countries. So. I think there are two possible paths here that you're going to see. You're either going to see a, a, a shifting kind of regulatory environment that is more supportive of innovation in general, and that's inclusive of Bitcoin, blockchain, and digital currencies, or you're going to start seeing all the innovation happening abroad in countries that are more supportive of, of, of financial innovation generally, um, places mm. like Singapore and Australia and the UK, um, uh, all of which have developed a much friendlier environment and more supportive environment. So, I'm I'm an optimist. I'd like to think that you know here in the U.S. we can we can we can do that and we can keep a lot of the innovation here within our within our borders and servicing U.S. citizens and, and making their lives better. But you right. know, taking the pessimistic view, you could see it easily taking too long here or, or or otherwise not getting done and seeing the innovation happening um, somewhere else. And the, um, you know, the, I guess you call them like the crypto anarchists or the people that, um, you know, want Bitcoin and, and other currencies, things like that to be decentralized and for everybody. Do you think that's a dream that's just going to go away? It's not possible? Do you think that the, you know, if, if, a given government or governments wanted to, they could, you know, really put the brakes on this or put a stop to it? I think that, I don't think there's a blockchain that exists today that is technically resistant to a nation state level attack, um, right? If, if China wanted Bitcoin to go away, I think it could happen. Um, it, or at least, it, it's such a degraded to such a degree that it's not the same system that we see today. Fortunately, that's not really something that we're seeing happen, right? Um, and that's good. Um, yeah. And I don't really think it's going to happen because I personally think that these systems have a lot of social benefit. And I think most of the people who are, um, uh, who would feel the, the those implications or, or you know see the social benefit as well. Right. Um, I don't see Bitcoin as a threat to central banks or, or anything like that or major central banks. Mm. Um, I do see it as a, a real powerful tool for empowering people who are left behind in the current um, financial system and the current global economy. People where who are in systems that um, where there aren't legitimate trustworthy institutions that will support their rights and property um, or rule of law for them, uh, who can use Bitcoin as an alternative and as a bridge out of these informal economies into the formal economy, whether it's within their borders or within their situation or, or somewhere else. I think that's the real potential here. And I think as long as people are focused and focusing their energy on those types of applications and those types of services, 
you know, I, I think that alone, that potential mitigates a lot of the risk of some sort of nation state, you know, major nation state sort of actor trying to disrupt the network or, or degrade the, the, the system. Okay, very good. Um, what's the best way for companies or individuals to, uh, you know, to, to talk to you about possibly seeking counsel or other, you know, other attorneys that are specialized in, in, uh, the, in this world? Sure. So um, I, I'm easily reachable by email. Um, my, it's p-m-u-r-c-k at cooley.com, c-o-o-l-e-y.com. Um, you can find me on the cooley.com website as well. Um, and, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to anybody um, who's interested in, in this area of uh, law. Okay, very good. Any anything else I should have asked you that I, I left out? Um, I don't think so. Um, do we? I feel like we covered a lot of ground there. I okay. hope it wasn't too boring and legal and technical. <laughs> no, it, it's no. I think I'm trying to ask the questions that um, you know I think are out there that that lay people would ask. I don't think it got too technical at all. I just. Yeah, I wanted to give folks just an idea that, uh, you know, it's not like they're in some Alice in Wonderland or alternate world. You know, regulation and law can and will apply. And, um, yeah, I just think I, my feeling is that a lot of people see it as um, a separate world from reality. And I see the two as coming together very quickly, just like yeah. the Internet appeared to be a separate world many years ago, and it, it quickly... Um, you know, interface with reality, you know, law-wise and everything else-wise. So that's why I bring yeah. it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It and it, it's it's it is a very it, it's a similar story. It's amazing the, how it's it's sort of a cliche, but it, it's every time I think about it, it 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 really is playing out in very very similar ways. Um, surprisingly, so I think because you would think some yeah. of the people who are being disrupted, some of the intermediaries, would have learned. <laughs> Right, like what happened last time, and developed a playbook, but um, um, it doesn't appear so. Uh, no. Maybe that's good for us. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good, uh, Patrick Merck, special counsel at Cooley LLP. Thanks for taking the time to do the interview. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to Almost Here, around the corner future technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.